Mazel Tov, everyone, and Shabbat Shalom. Thank you. My wife is a very nice person. In fact, she's a very, very nice person. She just walked in, so I'm, I'm emphasizing the point. But a few weeks ago, she did something mean. To understand this, I have to tell you the bigger picture. And the bigger picture is, is that we had taken a Shabbat to go to New York. And there we were, landed, taxied, and all checked into our Midtown Hotel with the day ahead of us. And we agreed to go for a walk to my favorite kosher deli where my grandmother used to bring me. And it was so long ago I started going there, but it seems like just yesterday she used to bring me there. So we stepped outside of the hotel and into the beautiful outside air, and my kind and lovely wife says to me, you know, I downloaded an app to my phone that measures every step I take. And sure enough, after she showed it to me, and every 30 minutes, like the obsessive-compulsive person I now recognize myself to be, I would ask her to check how many steps we took. How many miles have we walked? How far was it here from there to there? And from here to there? Which opened the door to a wide-ranging set of questions like, is a mile 10 New York City blocks or 20? Now, in case you're curious, the answer is, it depends. New York City streets that go north and south it's 20 blocks for a mile, but the streets that go east-west, it's 9 to 10. I told you I got obsessive about it. And in turn, it led me to download the app on my own phone. And now once a week, I'm left with this nagging question because I don't bring my, my phone to shul on Shabbat. I wonder, how many steps am I missing out each and every time we take the Torah out of the ark? Or when I go to my office, or when I walk home after services. If I could only get this all recorded... But then I hear this little voice in my head. The voice that talks back to us when we've gotten silly. It's the voice that laughs at the kind of world that we are seduced to live in. You know, where we're told where measurements matter. That's the world that tells you how you measure yourself up against each other. The time was that those measurements were about a paycheck or how big your home was whose car was more expensive, that those were the original measurements of success. Today we also measure success by Facebook friends and likes, Instagram friends and Twitter retweets as a measure of how we might be desired and loved, how often we grab the attention of other people. I just finished Malcolm Gladwell's book, David and Goliath, and it moved me to reread a story that I had learned as a child. And as I reread the story, it reminded me of the philosopher Gide's famous words. Gide asked the question, why do we keep repeating the same truths over and over again? Isn't it enough if we just say it once? And he said we keep repeating the same truths because people forget. So on the highway just outside of Tel Aviv, the one that heads east to Jerusalem, past the airport, but way before Latrun, is a flat plain that just before the road takes its pitch upwards to head to Jerusalem. That area is known as the Valley of the Ayalon. And if you head a few kilometers south, you come to a valley called Ela. That entire site has been the place of many, many wars because of the area that it overlooks. 
Joshua conquered the Canaanites. The Maccabees defeated the Syrians there. Saladin in the 12th century fought the Crusaders. And the chart remains of crude Israeli personnel carriers littered on the side of the roads of that highway is recent proof of that hard truth. 2,100 years ago, the Philistines encamped on the southern edge of that valley and they began to push their way north to destroy the kingdom of Israel. And the Israelite soldiers mustered on the other side of the valley, which left the two armies staring at each other with a huge ravine in between them. Neither of them dared to move. An attack meant you had to go down your side into the valley and then make a suicidal climb up the enemy's ridge on the other side. And as time passed, the Philistines had had enough. They sent their greatest warrior down into the valley to resolve the stalemate. He was six foot nine at least, wearing a bronze helmet and a full body armor. He turned and faced the Israelite side and yelled at them, Choose someone to come and fight me. If he defeats me, we will be your slaves. But if I prevail, you will become mine. And there he stood in the early morning sun, its rays reflecting off of his armor, the great Goliath. And the Israelites were now paralyzed. No one wanted to face him. And this paralysis threatened to destroy the Israelite army. Because if no one would fight then who would fight? The answer was to come with the shepherd from the north, the youngest of his family whose older brothers were at the front. His father had sent him to check in on them. And when he sees the army frozen, he volunteers to fight. And he's brought to the king. And the king wants to know how this man, David, thinks he can defeat the giant. And David tells the king Saul, that when he would shepherd his father's flock, that if a lion or a bear would come and snatch one of the sheep away, that he would pursue the wild animal until he got it back. And if that animal dared attack him, he would kill it. In other words, David is a man who cares for the things and people that he loves. And he is not afraid to defend them, no matter what the odds. Out of options now, the king, Saul, agrees to let him go. But you have to believe that he felt all was lost. The king offers David his armor. But David takes only a shepherd's stick and a slingshot. He walks to the ridge. He bends down and grabs five stones. And he walks into the valley where Goliath is waiting and taunting. Goliath looks at the boy coming toward him and is insulted. He sees the shepherd with the shepherd stick, a boy from the lowliest of professions, and he yells out, Hakelev anuchi, am I a dog, Goliath says, that you come to me with sticks? And what happens next is legend. David puts one of the stones in, from the leather pouch into his sling, and within a second of a fluid motion, he fires at Goliath's exposed head. And he falls to the ground. And David runs to him and grabs his own sword, Goliath's sword. And he finishes him off. The Torah then records, The Philistines saw their warrior was dead. 
and they fled. This David becomes King David. In time, he moves his throne to the city of Jerusalem, marking it as capital. His son is Solomon, who becomes king after him, and Solomon builds a temple there. The next time you're in Israel, and at the Western Wall, the story of Goliath comes to life, because if David had not run into that valley, none of that and none of this would be here. And so our question for this morning is, why is it that when we see a giant, that we automatically assume that the battle is theirs for the winning? Why do we always assume that the measurements we use are the ones that really matter in this world? And why is Jewish tradition filled with the stories of giants being slain? Our answer will come. But first, we will pause for prayer music and then some more. Well, we finished off with the question, and the question was, why is Jewish tradition filled with the stories of giants, of those things bigger than us, being brought down? And this morning, of course, is no different. This morning, we read of the story of the Israelites leaving Egypt, and their freedom from Egypt is only achieved because of the plagues that finally force the hands of the Egyptians to relent and let them go. And when we look at the plagues, we realize that most of them are the forces of nature turning against the Egyptians, where the weather goes crazy, or the water turns to blood, or insects and frogs infest their homes, or an angel of death. That once these plagues began, that they would continue when all you could do is shut your door and run for cover and hope that you survive once it's over. But there's one plague that that is not true. That is only true for nine of the ten. There was one plague that the Egyptians had the ability to stop the moment it began. The plague of darkness. All they had to do was light a light. But the Egyptians were blinded. They were blinded by the size of their empire, by the heights of their pyramid. They were blinded by their belief that they couldn't imagine that something as great as Egypt could ever fall. The story of David and Goliath is not only the story of David's courage and greatness. It's also the story of Goliath's blindness. Goliath couldn't see, he couldn't believe that something so small could bring down something that he believed to be so big. Because he believed that big was great. But that's the story of the Jewish people over and over again. It is a story of what we read about David, of courage and commitment and determination. It is a story of us believing that the things that we measure the world by is not the true measurement of the world. There are those who say you measure the world by what you see. And Jewish tradition reminds us over and over again that we are to measure the world by what we feel. So once again, why is Jewish tradition filled with the stories of giants being slain? In the same biblical book that tells the story of David and Goliath, 
we find the answer. The prophet Samuel turns and says to Saul, Adam that we humans only see what we can see with our eyes. But God sees into the heart. May we all be blessed with David's heart. Shabbat Shalom.